Dr. George Sweeting wrote in uh, Special Sermons for Special Days. He said, several years ago, our family visited Niagara Falls and it was spring and ice was rushing down the river. And as I viewed the large blocks of ice flowing toward the falls, I could see that there were carcasses of dead fish embedded in the ice. And gulls by the score were riding down the river feeding on those fish. And they came to the brink of the falls and their wings would go out and they would just kind of glide up and escape from the falls. He said, I watched one gull which seemed to delay a little bit too long and wondered when it would leave. And it was engrossed in, in feeding on the carcass of this fish. And when it finally came to the brink of the falls, out went the powerful wings and the bird flapped and flapped and even lifted the ice block out of the water. And I thought it would escape, but it had delayed just a bit too long so that its claws had frozen into the ice. And the weight of the ice was far too great for that bird and the gull plunged over the edge into the abyss. Reading that story graphically reminds us of how many people feel, how many people feel in the world right now, helplessly being pulled to the brink of disaster possibly while they struggle and fight to break free. Open any news app on your device and check the cover of any magazine on the shelf. You click the remote on any six o'clock news broadcast and you'll become painfully aware that bad news rules the day. Whether it's a plummeting economy or a relentless virus or the threat of being canceled by a ruthless, unforgiving culture, racial violence, moral scandals, and another celebrity trashing some white evangelical Christian group, bad news is the order of the day, isn't it? And given the fact that approximately one in 10 adults, mark this now, one in 10 adults in the United States checks the news every hour on their device. It is no surprise that people are colored with a negative bias and are under an alarming amount of stress and anxiety. Every day we encounter another headline heralding more bad news and behind it all is the murderous stranglehold of sin. And to be sure, there are some reports that make us smile and warm our hearts, but they are relatively scarce. I recently read that one Russian newspaper, The City Reporter, actually lost, lost 66%, two-thirds of its readers when it published only positive news stories for a 24-hour period. They determined they were just going to pu publish positive stuff and put a positive spin on every headline, and they lost 66% of their readers. It seems that on every level, worldwide or individual, bad news is the order of the day, and it is continually growing more and more rampant. Here are the statistics, a few. Approximately 90% of all media news is negative. Did you know that? This is a fact. If it bleeds, it leads. Right? That awful saying is one of the most common in the world of media. It's the influence behind the negative news headlines. 
Here's another one. The amount of negative news in the media has doubled in the last five years. Studies show that headlines with bad news catch 30% more attention. As someone has said, human beings are in the hold of a terrifying power that grips them at every core, at the very core of their being. Left unchecked, it pushes them to self-destruction in one form or another, and that power is sin, which is always bad news. Now, like that bird that plunged to his destruction, caught in the icy grip of a self-centered greed that he had, so also multitudes of men and women, whether they realize it or not, are caught in the deadly grip of sin. And unless something is done about it, before it's too late, sin will actually pull them to the brink of disaster. Now, when we talk about sin, we realize that's the epitome of bad news. Is that right? And it holds the world in its captive, as its captive prisoner. And at its core is self-will, and in its promise lies a burden of guilt, resulting in a hopeless, helpless, and an empty existence. What shall we do in the face of all of this? What shall we do? People are waking up to the truth that mankind is teetering on the edge of disaster. They know something is terribly wrong, and they know it cannot last. And the questions that are on everyone's lips are desperate, but vital. And I don't know if you can sense it, but I certainly can. Is there any hope? That's what people are asking. Is there any hope? Is there any help? Is there a, a handhold that I can grab onto that can lift me out of this mess that I'm in? Or do I just go with the flow until it finally pulls me over the edge? Is there any good news? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that a world gripped by sin needs to have a grasp on good news. Is that right? What it doesn't need is another false promise of peace through a treaty that will not outlive the paper that it's printed on. And by the way, the only peace treaty, the only thing a peace treaty provides is time for everyone to reload. Right? You knew that, right? What it doesn't need is another warm, fuzzy political plan that has no power to meet a person's true spiritual need. What the world doesn't need is another self-proclaimed Messiah that has no interest in people's souls. What the world truly needs is a rock-solid revelation that the power of sin's grip can be broken and that power is available to anyone who truly wants it. Now that would be good news, wouldn't it? Well, we have such a revelation, don't we? We have it right here in the book of Romans. If you're not there, I'd like you to turn there in your Bibles. If there was ever a message of genuinely good news, Paul's letter to the Romans is it. Not only was it good news to the first century church, but it is just as good now. Truly Good news is timeless, isn't it? Truly good news. It never loses its impact, and this one hasn't either. Every generation since the, the time the pen of the Paul's secretary hit the papyrus has been profoundly influenced by its message of good news, this book. 
It's the good news that in Christ, sin is dealt with and no longer has an unbreakable hold over mankind. Poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge once referred to the book of Romans as the most profound book in existence. Most of the great revivals and reformations in the history of the church have been directly related to this incredible book. John Calvin wrote of its impact this way. He said, quote, when anyone gains a knowledge of this epistle, he has an entrance open to him to all the most hidden treasures of Scripture, unquote. Now, I'm partial to what noted Swiss Bible commentator Frederick Godet called Romans. He said it was the cathedral of the Christian faith. Do you believe that? That's a good title for this, this little book, big book, actually. Paul's letter to the Romans is indeed all of those things and then some, but to me, a man struggling with the daily grind of the 21st century, just like you guys are, it is simply and purely good news. It's good news. It is good news because it deals squarely, head on, with the issues that we face. It shoots straight, it doesn't beat around the bush on moral issues intellectual issues, social, psychological, political, international, theological, relational, and spiritual issues of our day. It deals with them. It reads like today's news, except that it gives us answers. It will not leave us hanging. It is good news for the culture of our day. The question is, will people listen to it? Will we listen to it? Some years ago, I ran across a neat little quote that I wrote down and filed away. It was by Frederick Schreibner, who at that time was the executive director of the National Association of the Deaf. This is what he said. He said, there are only two kinds of people, those who can't hear and those who won't listen. <laughs> now, applying that to the message that I'm about to share with you today, I would say that there are only two kinds of people that can walk away from the message of Romans and not see it as good news. Those who can't hear and those who won't listen. Because the world that's gripped by sin needs a grasp on good news. And I've said it before and I'll say it again because Jesus did. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Look at Romans with me, the first seven verses. Chapter one. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The greeting. In these seven verses of Scripture lies the whole summary 
of the book of Romans. So I don't have to preach through the whole book. I just have to preach a couple of messages out of the first couple chapters. But right here in the first seven verses is a summary of the whole 16 chapters. And you know what it is? It's about the gospel. It's about good news. The first important item I want you to pay attention to is, well, first of all, his first words here is about the gospel of God. That's verse 1. And then at the end of the book, in, verse, in chapter 16, verses 25 to 27, you see that Paul refers back to the gospel yet again. Bookends. So the first important item I want you to pay attention to is this. First of all, I want you to note the personal credentials of the messenger. Verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Let's just stop right there. Paul never set foot in a Roman church before this letter. Did you know that? This was a group of people he had never visited. This, although he knew some of them through the other churches that he had founded, this was his letter of introduction to the Roman church. Consequently, he had to establish himself in their eyes. Why would anyone take notice of his letter or his words unless he had some sort of credibility? And so he is establishing himself here. Why would anyone take notice, let's say, of your message to the world? You'd need a little bit of credibility, wouldn't you? Or mine. Why would they listen to me? Do we have the credentials to have a message that we can proclaim to the world? Do we have the right outlook as messengers of good news? I think we can learn from Paul in this opening handful of verses here who reveals some important things about himself that are also true about us. First of all, he had an attitude of commitment. And I should say they should be true about, about us. He had an attitude of commitment. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. Paul begins by identifying himself as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. You know what? Paul was a, totally, a man totally possessed by Christ. Would you say that? He had the attitude of a servant. He was Christ's slave. Bondservant refers to one who was born as a slave. He was owned and he was bound to his master's service. This is totally different than a hired hand, by the way. The emphasis here is on complete and utter submission to and independence upon a master. It's not a humble title. Let me put, put it this way. Paul's not trying to be humble by saying, I'm a bondservant of Christ Jesus. It's an honest truth. He says, he's basically giving us the fact that he was owned by Christ. That he, that was his perspective. That it was an honor to him to be a slave of Christ. Now already, right out of the chute as I'm preaching this message, this, is, this idea is 180 degrees counter to the cultural mindset that we find ourselves in. You talk about slavery... You're not going to be wiped right off the face of anybody's attention. The last thing anybody wants to hear right now is that we're slaves or that anyone's a slave. 
right? But notice that he identifies himself as a bondservant here before he calls himself an apostle. Notice that. First things first, Paul says. Paul was not interested in titles, but duties. All those who are in Christ are bond servants. As countercultural as it may seem, that must be the outlook of every Christian man, woman, and child who claims to be in Christ. We are bond servants of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So here's the personal challenge. How many of us want the title of Christian, but not the responsibility of bondservant? I think we often expect the benefits of the position without accepting the job description that goes along with it. Paul didn't care about titles etched on an office door. He was concerned more with rolling up his sleeves and doing the work of the ministry and willing to endure from the the, the harsh treatment that might come along with it. Later, from the darkness of a prison cell, he would write to a group of believers in Philippi these famous and familiar words. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul willingly and voluntarily gave himself to servanthood because of his total love for Christ, his master, who bought and paid for him with his own blood. Paul's concept of serving Christ was actually the concept of an Old Testament slave. In the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21, for example, we read these words. Beginning in verse 1, now these are the ordinances which you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh he shall go out as a free man without payment. And if he comes alone, he shall go out alone. And if he is the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. But, here are the two verses that I want to show you. If the slave plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out as a free man, then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. You get the picture? This is what becomes of Jesus Christ's disciples, those who come to Christ and those who are in Christ and those who want to follow Christ. We've basically gone to the door and the all has been smashed through our earlobe and now we are not our own. We have been bought with a price. Amen? Being a servant of Christ costs something. Let me ask you, do you love your master and want to serve him permanently like that Old Testament slave may have done? See, our our, our problem is that we consider ourselves to be kings and priests, right? And that's biblically true. We are, aren't we? That's what the Bible says we are. But don't forget the other side of that coin. Scripture constantly teaches that the best leaders are those who serve as well. That was the mindset of God's greatest men in the Bible. They viewed themselves as bondservants of Christ. Titus chapter 1 verse 1, Paul says, I'm a bondservant of Christ. Again, James chapter 1 verse 1, James, a bondservant of Christ. 
2 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, Peter says, I'm a bondservant. Jude, the Lord's half-brother, in Jude 1, Jude addresses his readers saying that he was a bondservant of Christ. Moses was called the bondservant of God in Revelation chapter 15, verse 3. Jesus Christ himself is portrayed as a servant in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. They all had an attitude of commitment. Is that right? So, do you see yourself, do I see myself as a bondservant of God? Because Paul did. He had an attitude of commitment. Secondly, he had an awareness of his calling. An awareness of his calling. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. There was no higher human authority in the early church than that of an apostle, right? Paul identifies himself as one called by God, sent to bring a message of truth. It was not something that he chose to do. It was something that he was chosen for. You have to make sure you understand that. Galatians chapter 1 and verse 1, Paul writes, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He didn't choose this. He was chosen by God for this. Apostle literally means one sent with a message. In the narrow definition of the word, which I believe Paul is using here, an apostle was one who was specifically called by Christ himself, a witness of his resurrection, who received direct revelation of God's word, which was proclaimed with authority and confirmed by miraculous signs and wonders performed by them. You can see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, uh, 12, verse 12. And the apostles' teaching in the early church became the unique foundation of the church. That's what it says in Ephesians 2, verse 20. So this, this office of apostleship was a unique office held by a very limited number of men in the early church of which Paul was one. But in a general sense, however, all Christians are sent ones, aren't we? Aren't we? Jesus Christ said, as the Father sends me, so I send you. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 18 to 20, he sends us to make disciples of all the nations. He sends us to bring the good news of Christ to the world. So we are chosen by Christ and we are sent by Christ. And I believe there's no higher authority in the world today. I'm going on record for saying this, by the way. There is no higher authority in the world today than one who proclaims the truth of God. Now, I'm not just talking about me standing here or any pastor behind a pulpit. I'm talking about every single follower of Jesus Christ that goes and preaches the message of the gospel. They are the ones with the authority that preach truth in the world. Doesn't mean that that authority is going to be recognized, but they have it from God. That's what Jesus said, right? All authority has been given to me from God. And now I'm conferring it to you to go out and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and I'm going to be with you. That's authority. Amen? Amen. 
We're chosen by Christ. We're sent by Christ. It's interesting to me that in contrast to Paul, we're not so eager to proclaim that news that Paul was, right? As an apostle, Paul said, I am under compulsion for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. That's what he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16. And in Romans 1, later on in this chapter, in verses 14 to 16, and I just preached on this a few weeks ago, Paul writes, I am under obligation, I am eager, and I am not ashamed of the gospel. Do we view our calling with that kind of urgency? Is the question. Because if we want a world that is gripped by the power of sin to get a grasp on good news, then we have to understand our credentials as well as Paul understood his. He had an attitude of commitment, he had an awareness of his calling, and he had an absence of confusion. An absence of confusion. Again, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He knew what his focus was. He was set apart for the gospel of God. And the word means to mark off and to separate by a boundary or to a point. And the root of this word is where we derive our English word horizon from. Now you're probably scratching your head and saying, what does horizon have to do with this? Well, think about it. Paul's life was marked off from the rest of the world's lives by God to be focused on giving good news. When you look at the horizon, what do you see? You see a clear line between this world and the sky above, right? That's the idea of what being set apart means in this verse. There was no confusion in Paul's mind that he was marked off from the rest of the world in order to give good news. Acts chapter 9, verse 15, Luke writes, But the Lord said, Go, for Saul is a chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And the same thing is reiterated in Acts chapter 26, by the way. Acts chapter 26 and verse 16, we read these words. Paul giving his testimony, he says what the Lord said to him on the road to Damascus. He says, but get up and stand on your feet, Paul, for this purpose I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God, and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That is a message of good news, isn't it? That's what Paul was sent to preach. And he understood that he was permanently and completely set apart for one thing, the gospel of God. That's what it says right there at the end of verse 1. He knew it. He didn't argue about it. He just went ahead and did it. He fulfilled it. Now let me just make this application. If you're a Christian, God has set you apart for something. Is that right? He's marked you off from the rest of the world. In fact, from the day you were conceived, before you were even born, he set you apart unto him as a chosen instrument to bear the good news of Jesus Christ one way or another. Paul knew that. 
In Galatians chapter 1 and verses 15 and 16, Paul says, But even before I was born from my mother's womb, God chose me and called me by his marvelous grace. Then it pleased him to reveal his son in me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. Let me ask you a question. Do you, when you give your testimony to somebody, do you understand your calling from God the same way that Paul understood his? That, that you were saved from the foundation of the world? That while you were in your mother's womb, God called you? Even before you were born? That God had set you apart to do his work? Do you know that if you're a Christian? And if so, what are you doing about it? Have you even tried to figure out what it is that God has called you to yet? Jeremiah had to find that out the hard way because he had all kinds of excuses. Remember, Moses had excuses. Oh, here I am, Lord, send somebody else, right? And Jeremiah, all he did was lament and weep and and he had all kinds of excuses. Lord, kill me now. I, I just, I can't deal with these people that don't listen to this message anymore. Jeremiah 1, verses 5 to 7. He testifies, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. God speaking now. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Then I said, O Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak because I'm a youth. Here's the excuse. Sounds a lot like Moses, doesn't it? But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm a youth because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. You ever hear God tapping you on the shoulder and saying that to you? Well, Lord, I can't do that. I, I, I just don't have that gift. The Lord says, don't, don't say that to me. Who made your mouth? Who called you into this ministry? See, Paul was set apart. Jeremiah was set apart. If you're in Christ, you're set apart. You need to stop arguing with God and start fulfilling your purpose. We all do. Is that right? My brothers and sisters, the world needs some good news. And the bad news is drowning them. And if you're a Christian, you've got the credentials to proclaim the good news to this world. You need to get a grasp on the same things that Paul understood about his call. You need to have an attitude of commitment. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. You are Christ's bondservant. You need to have an awareness of your calling. You have been authorized by Christ to proclaim the good news. And you need to have an absence of confusion. You have been set apart by God for the gospel. That's all in verse 1. And you're saying, how is he ever going to get to verse 7? <laughs> Here's what Romans 10, verse 15, 14 and 15 say. How then are they to call on him in whom they have not believed? How are they to believe in him whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? But how are they to preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. If you're a follower of Christ, you got beautiful feet to the world when you bring them good news. 
They might not know it at the beginning, but some will. And in order to bring good news, not only do we need to understand our personal credentials as messengers, but we also need to get a grasp on something else. This is the second big thing here. The powerful content of the message. It's not about the messengers, it's about the message. And that's from the second part of verse five, uh, 1 all the way down to verse 5. This is how I'm going to get through verse 7. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. There's a lot contained here. The gospel, remember, is good news, amen? Gospel means good news. If we've been chosen and called and commissioned to spread the good news, then we better have a handle on that message, shouldn't we? The content of the message. First of all, know this, that it's a credible message. It's the gospel of God. Notice that at the end of verse 1. Credibility is absolutely important, and the most important thing we need to realize is that the gospel has powerful credibility. Why? Because it doesn't originate with us. It's of God. It's God's word. It's not man-made. It's not a man-centered message. Man-centered messages may be good news to some people, but they carry no weight in comparison to God's good news. Amen? In Paul's day, the emperors of Rome were considered to be deity. They demanded worship from people. Events concerning the emperor were proclaimed by the town herald as good news. That's where the term comes from, right? He would stand in the streets, the herald would stand in the streets and shout things like, good news, the emperor's wife has given birth to a son. So it was a totally elite-centered message and hardly good news to the hurting, oppressed people struggling to survive. There's nothing good about it to them. Oh, good, another heir to oppress us even more. In 21 centuries, the news has not changed much. I just, at the beginning of this message, I just showed you how much people thrive on bad news. All kinds of so-called good news is proclaimed from the streets of our society, right? Good news, the president has signed the stimulus package. Good news, the COVID vaccine is available. Good news, pandemic restrictions are finally going to be relaxing. All of that may, in fact, be good news, but it's nothing to stake your life on. The only truly good news is the good news of God that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh and has made provision for your eternal salvation through his death and burial and resurrection and appearances. The gospel is a credible message. And it's also a confirmed message, verse 2, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. From the first gospel spoken in Genesis chapter 3, that's the first hint of the gospel that we get, 
Through the entire Old Testament, the good news of Jesus Christ was proclaimed and salvation was promised. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12 says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. You understand how important this message is? That from Genesis 3 all the way through the Old Testament up until today, it's still being preached? Someone has estimated that the Old Testament contains some, something like 332 prophecies of Christ, most of them being fulfilled at his first coming. God brought us good news, but throughout history, most people have really missed it, haven't they? It's a credible message, it's a confirmed message, and it's a concentrated message. That's verses 3 to 5. It concerns his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, and on what I just read to you. This message of the gospel concerns, it says, Jesus Christ. As Donald Gray Barnhouse, who preached 11 years in the book of Romans. That's why I'm not going to preach through the whole book. I don't have that much time left before I pass the baton. There can be no gospel, not even a gospel of God, apart from that which concerns his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a true statement. What is the gospel? I talked about that last week, didn't I? We looked at it last week in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 1 to 8. You don't have to memorize all eight of those verses. I'm going to give you the short version right now that you can memorize, okay? Here it is. Christ died. Christ was buried. Christ was raised. Christ was seen. Amen. That's the gospel. And you need to receive that. And what good is that gospel? Paul says it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's what good it is. There's a lot of gospels being offered out there today, folks. But if they aren't concerned with Jesus as the Son of Man, that's what it says here in verse 3, concerning his Son who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus as the Son of God, that's verse 4, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Jesus as Lord of all, that's also in verse 4, According to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, what's it say? Our Lord. And Jesus as the giver of grace, that's in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. So Jesus as the son of man, Jesus as the son of God, Jesus as the Lord of all, and Jesus as the giver of grace. If the gospel that you are hearing is not concerned those things, then that gospel is not worth your time and attention. Because a false gospel cannot ultimately bring you good news. It cannot meet the deepest needs of mankind. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ that people can be saved. Plain and simple. 
And Paul said that through Christ, he received his power, his grace, his privilege, apostleship, and his purpose to bring about the obedience of faith among the Gentiles for his namesake. This is all what Paul understood his calling to entail. And it's only through the good news of a Christ-centered gospel that the world will receive any of those things. Anything else is simply an empty message. See, the world doesn't need any more empty messages, does it? It's had enough bad news. And a world gripped by sin needs a grasp on good news. Are you willing to bring it? Bring it. You and I need to understand our personal credentials as a messenger, the powerful content of the message, and finally, we ought to get a handle on the privileged character of those who respond to that message. That's verses 6 and 7. We're getting there. Verse 6, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. So if you thought that all of this was talking about Paul, this verse says it's for you too. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In this text, in these two verses, Paul addressed the first century Christians in Rome, but all of these benefits here that I'm going to talk about right now belong to all people who respond in faith to the good news of Christ. Here it is, really quickly. Number one, anyone who is in Christ Anyone who responds by faith to the gospel of Christ, first of all, you got to know they are loved by God. They're loved by God. That's what it says right there in verse 6, uh, verse 7. To all who are, say it, beloved of God. In his classic work on the book of Romans, Donald Gray Barnhouse, again, the guy who preached for 11 years on it, he tells of a legend he had encountered which graphically illustrates the depth of God's love for his own children. He writes, I heard a bold and daring story in France that will illustrate my point. It's a little bit graphic, so just be careful. It was told that a young man much loved of his mother, but it's a legendary story, pursued a wicked course that took him deeper and deeper into sin in his life. He became enamored of an evil woman who dragged him further and further into unrighteousness. And the mother naturally sought to draw him back to a higher plane. And the other woman resented it bitterly. One night, as the story goes, the evil woman chided the man with an accusation that he did not really love her. Well, you don't love me. And he vowed that he did. She appealed to his drunken mind saying that if he loved her, he would rid them of his mother and her pleadings. According to the, the legend, the young man rushed from the room to the nearby house in which his mother dwelt and dealt her death blows, tearing the heart from her body to carry back to the evil woman that challenged him. Then comes the climax of the tale, this French tale. As she rushed on in his insane folly, he stumbled and fell, and from the bleeding heart, there came a voice that said, My son, are you hurt? That's the way God loves us. That's the way God loves his children. 
Even after Israel, God's chosen people in the Old Testament rejected his good news time and time again. All the way into the New Testament where they nailed his son to a cross. God continued to draw them back by his incredible compassion. Isaiah chapter 49. Verse 14. But Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me, and the Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but God says, I will not forget you. Behold, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. And then in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 3, we read, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. God's love never fails, does it? No matter what his people do to him. It's incredible to me that God would be willing to stoop down to us after we've rejected him for so long. But he does. And that's grace. Undeserved favor. Someone once said, love that goes upward is worship. Love that goes outward is affection. But love that stoops, that's grace. Christians are the beloved of God. Secondly, they are called of Christ. Verse 7 also, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints. That signifies an intensely personal relationship that we're called. Those who respond to the good news belong to him. They are his sheep, the sheep of his pasture, and they were called to be his from the foundation of the world, it says in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. So, they're the beloved of God. They are called of Christ. Thirdly, they are chosen as saints, it says here, called as saints. Spurgeon was reported to have said this about this verse. It's a good thing that God chose me before I was born because he surely wouldn't have afterwards. <laughs> you know, listen, I grew up in a, in a different faith, a different religion. And I just want to say this to you right now because this this word of God just opened my mind to a whole new view of things when I became a Christian. You don't have to be beatified or canonized or do miracles or to have a church named after you to be qualified as a saint according to this verse and other verses. According to the Bible, if you are in Christ... You are a saint. You are a saint. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Saints. But it's not just for them. Paul goes on to say, with all who 
in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. We're all saints if we're in Christ, amen? The word literally means set apart ones. And the term emphasizes our position in Christ even when our practice sometimes falls miles short of what our position says we are. A saint is anyone set apart for God's ownership and use. That's you and me if we're in Christ. Therefore, we should act accordingly, shouldn't we? Because that's what's true about us. Maybe if we started acknowledging the fact that we are saints, we would act like saints. But we run around and tell everybody we're sinners, which we are. But what's the slight change in perspective? Are you a saint? You are, if you're in Christ. And then fourthly, they're considered as blessed. They're loved by God, called of Christ, chosen of saints as saints, and they are considered blessed. Verse 7, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a blessing. Grace to you and peace. In a world caught between the stress of survival and the struggle to succeed, Grace and peace are two huge pieces of good news, aren't they? Huge. Grace and peace? I wouldn't use those two terms to describe our current state of affairs in our world, would you? Grace and peace? Really? And yet, in Christ, this is what we're blessed with. This is what we should offer to others as well because that is good news. But grace and peace can only come to those who are the beloved ones, the called ones, and the holy ones. Who are they? The people who have come to God the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, his Son. And that's the best news you'll ever hear. The bad news, however, is that people still hold back and they opt out for some other way they try everything under the sun. I don't think I can do this thing with Jesus. I'm going to try it some other way. But the truth is, if you want to get to the Father, you've got to go through the Son. Let me wrap it up with this story. The story is told of a very wealthy man who had many, many, many valuable art treasures. And his only son... It was quite ordinary, but he was dearly beloved of his father. When the son died unexpectedly as a young man, the father was so deeply grieved that he died only a few months later. The father's will stipulated that at his death, all of his, all of his valuable artworks were to be publicly auctioned off and that a painting of his son was to be auctioned off first. And on the day of the auction began, the specified painting was displayed and the bidding was opened. And because neither the boy nor the artist were well known, a long time passed without any bids being offered. Finally, a longtime servant of the father and a friend of the boy timidly offered 75 cents. All the money he had, 
at the time. And when there were no other bids, the painting was given to the servant for 75 cents. And at that point, the sale was officially declared over. And an official read the remainder of the will, which specified these words, that whoever cared enough for his son to buy the painting of the son would receive all the rest of the estate. This is a picture of God's provision for the world at large, the good news of the gospel of salvation. Anyone who receives the Son gets the whole blessed estate. They are, as Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That is good news to get a grip on. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you have so outlined the blessings of the good news of salvation in Christ. But Lord, we know as well as you knew, and that's why it's in the scriptures, that we need to understand the bad news before we can accept the good news. And the bad news is, is that we are just wretched sinners in need of salvation. But the good news is, is that for anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What a blessed and beautiful message. Help us, Lord God, who know that truth and who cherish that truth and who see it as a prized possession that we have, that you have graciously bestowed upon us, to not hold it back from others, especially now when the world is in such turmoil. Lord God, give us courage, give us strength, give us an ability to submit ourselves to the power of the Holy Spirit that resides within us to be able to share that message in the way that you desire. For Jesus' sake, I pray.